0: Episode 195 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and the podcast welcomes Seamus Award winning writer Paul D. Marks, whose The Blues Don't Care is on the cusp of its pub day. Thank you so much for talking with Speaking of Mysteries, Paul.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Nancy. I'm glad to be here.
0: When I started to read The Blues Don't Care, Um, And you can actually, this can be sort of a two-part question, you can answer, a short answer, and then we can talk about it later. Um, The unusual circumstances of the main character, Bobby Saxon, uh, who we first meet in the morgue, waiting to be identified, uh, rang a bell. So I have to ask, did the life of musician Billy Tipton uh, inspire you?
1: Uh, that's very good yes um i had read something about billy tipton and that was the inspiration for bobby but really just a jumping off point um bobby is not based on billy tipton's life but uh like i say more like just an inspiration
0: right we can we can get a little bit more into that in a second if you want it's it's world war ii era Los Angeles. And Bobby is a white musician, a pianist, who wants nothing more than to play in a band, and specifically Booker Boom Boom Taylor's band that plays uh, in a club on Central Avenue, which is the center of African American life uh, at the time music and nightlife. Uh, Bobby is a fish out of water, and and yet uh, describe him to us.
1: Well, Bobby, you know, as we say, Bobby is inspired by Billy Tipton, and um, Billy Tipton is a musician who was a woman but uh, lived as a man and played uh, in small uh, combos or something. So Bobby is kind of inspired by that and trying to live as a man in a world that really does not accept that. So he's a fish out of water, and he doesn't feel accepted by his family or by society, and he loves the uh, swing music and the Central Avenue scene, so he goes down there, and he's an outsider in his life, and in a sense, the musicians and people uh, down on Central Avenue are outsiders, or at least outside the mainstream of American life. Uh, They weren't allowed to um, eat in uh, regular restaurants, uh, stay in most hotels, that kind of thing. So Bobby is an outsider in a group of outsiders, and I think he thinks that that will make him more accepted and more comfortable, even though they don't really know his secret.
0: Right, and of course, crime fiction is all about secrets, and uh, yeah. that's what I found really fascinating about the Blues Don't Care is the layers of secrets Bobby's got a secret uh, Booker doesn't seem to have a secret except you know he's he's a bit of a, a a mysterious guy. Where does his money come from? Why does he have all these connections but even in the investigation of of this crime, which was interesting, Billy is offered a spot uh on the in the band if he can uh prove that James did not kill this man on a boat. Um that's that's what uh, Booker does and he does it because Billy's a white guy who can go places that someone, that a man of color cannot.
1: Well, that's exactly what happens. Bobby wants to be um, a musician with the band, and he goes down and he tries to talk Booker into letting him join the band. But as a white guy, that would be uh, definitely an exception. The rest of the band is all black. And some of the band members resent him. But what happens is they end up on a gambling ship off the coast of California, of which there were real gambling ships at that time. Uh, The one that they go to is one that I've made up, but it's based on the real ships. And uh, somebody is killed on the ship, and one of the band members is accused of the murder. And as you say, because Bobby has entree into places that the band members don't necessarily have entree into. Uh, Booker says, if you want to gig with the band, you got to find out who really killed the guy, the dead guy. So that's how Bobby gets involved.
0: Well, I liked that the murder took place on one of those gambling ships because I think that's a fascinating slice of <clears throat> excuse me, Southern California history that they had these... Ships that could go three miles out into international waters and gamble. Um, I think they started during Prohibition, so people could drink, um, and they they found that once Prohibition had been uh, reversed, uh, that other vices could be indulged in.
1: So well, anything the, that you do off the three-mile limit, uh, you know, eventually that didn't protect them, but for a while it did. And people would just take water taxis from uh, various piers along the Southern California coast. A lot of Hollywood people, even the politicians who, on the one hand, might, you know, rail against the gambling ships. You know, they they could be found there, too. You know, I I like to joke that if one of those ships was sunk, half of Hollywood and half the political uh, movers and shakers in Los Angeles would go down with it.
0: It must have been fascinating research, though it's just such a i i, I think <clears throat> i know that you are a screenwriter as well so this to me was very very cinematic this idea of uh, a band on a ship and a, a a very the description of the the murder the the murdered man drops from the scaffolding above the stage uh, with a noose around his neck and it's it's all very dramatic you know screaming and uh shifting back and forth in Mayhem and and I, I really enjoyed that. I that I found that a captivating scene. I know, macabre, but captivating.
1: Well it works on both levels. If that's you know, if that works that way, that's fine. And um I, I find the gambling ships just fascinating. You know, they on the one hand they're very romantic and um you know it, it just you know, being on the sea and gambling and, you know, only three miles off the shore of Los Angeles. And then on the other hand, they're pretty seedy. They were run by gangsters. Uh, the real gambling ships did have gunmen on board to keep the peace, uh, you know, and they weren't uh, bonded security guards. So uh, they they must have been interesting places.
0: Well, the other thing that uh, I enjoyed as I live in Southern California and uh It's a fascinating place, and it's a a place of a lot of history that's often overlooked, because I think most history books are written by people on the East Coast. Um, But Bobby goes from Malibu to Long Beach and inland in Santa Monica in his search for the real killer. And, you know, that that also is fascinating, the idea that... um, He's down in Long Beach, which even uh, in, during World War II was one of the nation's biggest ports, and looking into some nefarious um, goings-on down there, uh, shipping to Germany, which is uh, illegal because it's World War II and Germany's the enemy. And meanwhile, there's still uh, uh, blackouts because uh, the West Coast is worried about attacks from Japan.
1: Right, and, uh, you know, I love Los Angeles history. I'm from L.A. My family goes back, you know, so I don't know. I just have an affinity for more of a love-hate relationship. than <laughs> <laughs> And um, I love doing the research, and for for the research on this, one of the things that was really cool, I mean, I did the usual research, you know, books, Internet, that kind of thing, but my mom and her friends, were kids in L.A. during the war, and, you know, they remembered it. So I could get some firsthand research that you don't necessarily get by doing uh, book research or Internet research. And the other thing that I found really fascinating, and this is one of my downfalls because I love researching, but, you know, I, I was trying to figure out how do I get Bobby and his sort of partner, Sam, down to Long Beach in the days before freeways. You know, now you get on the freeway and you're down there and, you know, it's pretty easy. But how did you do it then? And the way that I found to figure that out is um, I bought a bunch of old L.A. area maps off of eBay and I, you know, watched or I, I saw what the main roads were. Plus I talked to my mom and her friends and between the two of those things, um, I was able to figure out how they would get down there. But, it, it you know, it's, it's really you don't realize how much things change, and we're used to a certain way of doing things or a certain, I don't want to call it lifestyle, but for lack of a better word, you know, like freeways being part of that lifestyle. And what did you do before freeways? How did you get there? How did you get places? And how long did it take? Because it took a lot longer in those days.
0: Well, yeah, it it took a lot longer. Uh, I believe in the book they went down Western Avenue, to get to right. Long Beach, and mm-hmm. uh, the cars also went a little bit slower. And and Bobby, uh, in spite of you know he he's he, he's a he loves cars and he's good at noodling with them and keeping them running and uh, which also plays against uh, the gender to which he was born.
1: Right. Yeah, Bobby has a fascination with things like that. And uh, Bobby is just, I I would say, a person ahead of her slash his time and trying to make his way in a world that is not ready for him.
0: But, you know, back to World War II era Los Angeles, and I think it might be surprising to many people um, because there was a lot going on here, uh, in addition to movies being made, which continued to be made during the war. Uh, for one thing, there were Nazis in Los Angeles, and uh, you know, as well as their fellow traveling business people, during their best to support the German cause, and that is an element in your story as well. And then there's this the usual soup of hatred, uh, a hatred of people of color, of Jews, of homosexuals. But the counterpoint, one of the things I really enjoyed was the counterpoint was there was also this exuberance, Um, and one of those things was the robust musical scene. Um, And, in fact, the title of your book comes from a song's lyrics.
1: Right. The title, The Blues Don't Care, is from a Nat King Cole song, and it's a really great song if anybody wants to look it up. But one of the issues I had with that and I found a way around it, is that the song actually came out after the time period of the novel. So I wanted to use the title, but I figured, how am I going to do that, you know, because I'm trying to be accurate to the time period? So what I did is I have a very short bit where one of the songwriters comes into the Club Alabama during off hours and kind of noodles on the piano playing the song, So we see him working on the song, and therefore, in my mind at least, it was okay to use that song, even though the song actually came out after the war.
0: Well, there's also poetic license. You know, sometimes you have to massage things to make them work, and as long as you didn't uh, Completely rewrite history. I think. I think uh, readers can forgive. At least I was able to. I, I thought. Um,
1: I thought we it was... did. Celebrities, don't we? <laughs>
0: and I, I. It's a perfect title for this because there's. Uh, because maybe music doesn't care about sort of some of these things that people do or did. And continue to care about a lot, you know, the color of someone's skin, uh, their gender issues, um, their faith. You know, I don't think music cares about that, Um, and and it's in that way kind of transcends this human condition. And and strangely, I found that very uplifting.
1: Well, and I I think you're right about that. And one of the few places in that era where blacks and whites could congregate together were some of those clubs, like the Club Alabama where Bobby plays, down on um, uh, Central Avenue. Whites, you know, from the other parts of town would go down there, you know, and enjoy the music. And it was a good scene. And Bobby, at one point, the the Club Alabama is next door to the Dunbar Hotel, which was like the premier hotel where African Americans stayed when they couldn't stay in white hotels. And everybody from Duke Ellington to famous uh, people like W.E.B. Du Bois and people like that stayed there. But one night the story goes that W.C. Fields was at the Club Alabama and got drunk, and they put him up in the club Alabama, I mean, in the Dunbar Hotel. So he inadvertently integrated the hotel for one night. <laughs>
0: and I'm, I can imagine that happening. And I, I think that's another element of Los Angeles that people, you know, a lot of people think about Harlem and about the clubs up there on the Apollo. But uh, Los Angeles had an incredibly vibrant music scene, for one thing. Thousands and thousands of musicians lived here um, because they played uh, for the scores for movies.
1: And, well, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, off.
0: go ahead. And and that lent itself to more musicians coming here, as well as an African-American population <clears throat> that had started to leave the South in the, you know, there was the great migration north to Chicago There was also... Migration West to California, especially from Texas and Louisiana.
1: Well, that's true. You know, people, I think a lot of people are familiar with that migration north to Chicago, and that kind of begat the Chicago blues scene. But, yeah, there was a migration west also to Los Angeles, and Central Avenue at that time was the hub of that scene. It wasn't just. Um, nightclubs and and hotels, but it was a whole neighborhood of doctors and dentists, and you know everything was segregated back then. But it, it was that hub of black life in Los Angeles at the time.
0: Once again, you know history is often written by people on the East Coast, and and <laughs> uh, Los, An- Los Angeles and its contributions and uh, are are often overlooked and. I think Central Avenue is, is it has been uh covered in other stories but it it really was uh, must have been a fantastic
1: um
0: place to go.
1: Oh, I'm sure it was. I wish I could have seen it in its heyday.
0: Talk about uh in the in the war, you know, Bobby's going around, one of the things that happens is he is Small for a man, and uh, a, most able-bodied men at this point are in the service, and so that's one of the things that he encounters is queries about that. Uh, was that a, a difficult um, uh, sort of technically when you when you wrote about those scenes? Was that a, a difficult thing to do, or w- was Bobby cooperative? As a character,
1: I, I think in that situation, Bobby was cooperative. Um, there is a scene where he gets beat up because some people recognize him uh, as somebody they went to high school with, but who looks very different now. But they they know who it is, and Bobby feels funny you know like you say you know every everybody at that time every able bodied man just about wanted to join the service and bobby wanted to as well but for obvious reasons couldn't and feels funny about that so i thought that was something that should play into the story and something that probably would have happened to somebody like bobby at that time and it also is an
0: element of when he does meet women it's often a question that they ask him.
1: Well, it's a question of um, him trying to, you know, figure out how much of himself he wants to reveal to people. And I think that's part of what the story is. You know, the story is going on different levels. One of the levels is the mystery, you know, who killed the guy on the gambling ship. Who killed Hans? And was he really a Nazi? (laughs) Right, exactly. And um, the other level is, is about Bobby. You know, Bobby is trying to find who he is, trying to figure out where he fits in the world and how he fits in the world and how to be a man. You know, Bobby doesn't have a good role model in his father. So what he does is he goes to movies and he watches Humphrey Bogart to figure out how to be a private eye and how to be a man. And he also, because he doesn't have a good role model in his father, he uh, watches some of the B-movie cowboys of that era, like Gene Autry, and adopts... Gene Autry had a cowboy code, and Bobby adopts um, Gene Autry's cowboy code as a way to get through the world.
0: And, and he, does, he does muddle through, and he actually does, uh, in, in spite of being reluctant and uh, not a trained detective actually is pretty good because he's, because I think he's had to figure out how to be a man, he's also become extremely observant and he's very, very good at that. He's a natural.
1: Well, he's observant and he's tenacious, you know, he has goal, and nothing's going to keep him from the goal. Whether that's getting into Booker's band or trying to figure out uh, who killed Hans Dietrich, the uh, German national on the uh, uh, gambling ship, and you know he he will do what he has to do and learn what he has to learn to try to achieve that end or those ends.
0: So. I have to ask: um, Is there any chance Bobby might come back in an, another novel? And and if not, what are you currently working on? Because you're you're definitely uh, committed to the crime fiction genre, uh, sort of in the noir uh, world of it.
1: Sometimes I think I should just be committed, but. <laughs> Um, Yeah, Bobby will probably come back. I'm kind of formulating an idea for another Bobby story. And actually, Bobby's been in three published stories, but they came out a long time ago, so I don't think most people really remember him. I'm working on other stuff. I have a series, uh, the Duke Rogers series, my books White Heat and Broken Windows, which are set in the 1990s and i'm working on a third book in that series plus a standalone novel plus some short stories uh, i got plenty of stuff to keep me busy that's for sure
0: you know it's that's usually my last question but you you you've touched on something that i think is really interesting and something maybe people don't realize about writers that the characters are sentient and so a character that you might have written about Many years ago, in a story that people might not remember, uh, always stays with his or her creator, and I find that so fascinating. How a character can can come back to a writer and say, "You know, it's time to put me back in another story. I have more to tell you."
1: <laughs> I think that's a great way of putting it. I yeah, you know, if you have a good character, they become like a friend or an alter ego or something to you, and um, they never really leave you. And, you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, they're always uh, percolating, and, you know, at some point they say, hey, it's time. I'm ready to come back.
0: (laughs) Well, I, for one, would very much like to see Bobby again because he's fascinating. And uh, and his life as... Um, what we would now probably call a transsexual, but probably that word wasn't even used in the 40s, uh, makes him extraordinarily interesting. And and the time and the place also are extraordinarily interesting. So I'm
1: hoping... Well, I, on both aspects, you know, Bobby's gender issue and the era, uh, like you say, fascinating. I particularly like that era for a lot of different reasons, even though it was a difficult era in a lot of ways. And Bobby being how he is, you know, that creates a good challenge for a writer. It creates conflict. And, you know, having Bobby try to make his way through the world, and it, within himself as well. It's it's not just out in the world. It's trying to you know figure out who you are. And in an era where it's a lot less accepted than it is today.
0: Well, I appreciate your time, Paul, and talking about uh, the the blues don't care and. Uh, Bobby Saxon and and, uh, Los Angeles in the 40s. We should mention we're still in a pandemic, and uh, the initial marketing for this will probably be a little bit challenging.
1: Well, it definitely is. I'm having, uh, if anybody wants to join us, a uh, virtual Facebook launch on June 1st uh, from 5 to 6 p.m. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but, uh, you know, That'll be 5 to 6 p.m. on June 1st, and that's the day that the book comes out on uh, all the different sites. Thank you. Thank you again,
0: Paul, for spending time with us and talking about your, your new crime fiction novel.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and I really enjoyed being here.